You'll often hear me banging on about having studied and practiced this work with spirit for over two decades. It would sometimes appear like a badge of honour or a statement of authority and knowledge. But understand, equally as often, if not more, you'll hear me telling you how important education is and the study in this subject. In fact, I'm spending every working day asking questions still. I recall being in a workshop with Glyn Edwards, the teacher, and I recall him telling the group how he had spent his entire life studying and learning and practising his spirituality. Yet, even then, he said he had more questions that needed answering than ever before. Because of the nature of our work with spirit, it's like working through layers of understanding, with our soul, with the way the spirit world works, with the unfoldment, with the communication, and with pretty much every aspect within this multi-leveled facets of spiritualism. Every day, a question arises that I'm curious to explore. Some of these are so basic, you'd be led to wonder why I've not learnt the answers before. Today's podcast is a question and answer session with my guest. Through her research and study, Maxine has attained much knowledge and understanding of mediumship and many aspects of the work with spirit. She would also be the first to admit that many of the questions I'll ask her don't have exact answers that you can set in concrete as being the absolute truth. For you to prove that statement, I want you to do an exercise. I want you to do nothing more than just listen to this podcast and mark the date in the diary of when you listen to it. Then I want you to set a repeat timer in that calendar or diary and re-listen to this podcast in, say, 12 months or two years or even five. Here's what I'm certain you will discover. Or that your understanding of this work and your unfoldment, your opinions and your knowledge will hear different answers or different understanding of the answers. Because our understanding of the truth is somewhat fluid, as it should be, some answers may take time to resonate with you. Other answers may never be to your liking, or they might well only be the opinion of today's guest, and therefore not in alignment with the way you are working and thinking. However, I have huge respect for my guest today. She has devoted much time to her study and to her research and writing on spiritualism and mediumship. She has a deeper understanding than me, and through asking and listening, I too can move forward in my journey as you can in yours. With that all said, let me introduce to the Virtual Spirited Talks studio, Maxine. This is Spirited Podcast, with your host, Trevor, and a carefully selected guest, ready to share their knowledge and experience on their specialist aspect of their work with the spirit world. So grab your notepad and pen, pin your ears back and open your mind. It's time for a podcast session. Answering the questions with Maxine Mayer, part one. Uh, Well, it's a very good morning. It's nice to see you on my screen, albeit in ear that I can see, but that's fine. We're doing an audio. How are you this morning, Mac? I'm well, Trevor. I'm well. What do you think of that introduction to you? There's a lot of other stuff I could have uh, could have said, so I'm glad you didn't say that other stuff. You have recently shared your story on Spirited Talk, and that was fabulous. And I didn't ask you a few things. I didn't ask how was the COVID where you are in Q8. However, I learned this morning through text that you've actually already had the first of your Oxford vaccines. Uh, vaccines? Yeah, is that right? Vaccines, yes. That's the right word, correct? Yes, I've had the first jab. Four weeks from now, I'll be jabbed again. 
Well, you hope so. <laughs> How is the COVID generally in, in Kuwait? Is it under control or running amok? Well, we've had very little deaths and um, the cases are about the worldwide average, but I guess every government is going crazy with lockdowns and whatnots. So the businesses are still very much recovering. Yes, and, and, and I do recognise even our government is uh, working flat out to do the best or what they think is best at this time. And uh, I've actually got good praise, fair, fair praise for our government in the UK for sure. I think they've worked darned hard to get where we are right now, especially with the vaccines coming along the way. I joked with you before we came on, vaccine and vaccine. There's a poem in there. I talked about in the introduction about how important education is, especially within this spiritualism itself. You mentioned yesterday in your interview uh, that you believe knowledge is power. Do you want to just quickly explain what you mean by that? Knowledge is power in that if you're a part of a movement, you don't even have to say religion or could be your profession, it could be your career. But if you're a part of a movement, it's best to know about that movement. First of all, somebody from the street might come up and ask you a question. It's good to have a basic repertoire of knowledge, facts, figures, names of people in spiritualism, what they did, so that you could talk to the average person, okay? You're at a cafe or a diner. Someone wants to know about mediums and uh, say, oh, yeah, their grand uh, used to go down to um, Royal Albert Hall. Now, you should know that Estelle Roberts, I think, did 27 engagements, all sold out at Royal Albert Hall. She packed them in. She also didn't take a dime, but that's another story. So if you're in the movement of spiritualism, maybe not a professional reader, professional medium, but are just in the movement and and can say, yes, I'm a spiritualist or yes, I'm a medium, you should be able to say intelligently a little something about it to the average person. So knowledge is power. Number one, it stops you from looking stupid. And number two, it actually allows you to talk to the average person. I often quote an old saying that I learned years ago, and that was that you can tell the intelligence of a person by how much they're prepared to talk about something they know so little about. And that often comes to mind when I hear some people talking. I think, right, okay, well, that shows how little you know. So I'm much more harsh than you. I I do like what you've uh, said there. One of the things I have to say, Max, I wonder if you'll agree with this. Uh, A student was talking to me a few weeks back, maybe a few months ago, and he said to me, my problem is that I lack confidence in my work and that lack of confidence upsets me. And and I suggested that they go away and educate themselves uh, through the philosophy and the history of spiritualism and through everything about this, because it was my belief, or it still is my belief, that the more you know about something, the more confident you are going to be. Would you agree with that, Max? I would agree. Many people go into courses and tell the teachers exactly the same thing. They're wanting to be more confident. And if the teacher is worth their salt, they'll look right back at them and say, I don't teach confidence because no one can teach confidence. It has to come from within whether it comes from within because you know a lot, whether it comes from within because 
you're comfortable in your own spiritual skin, whether it comes from within because you've sat in the power a lot, whether it comes from within because you've gone through uh, therapy and, and learned about yourself. But confidence comes from within. And yes, knowledge is definitely uh, a, a part of it. Yes, thank you very much for that. Okay, in front of me, the title of this, by the way, the title of this podcast was 20 Questions and Answers. That's what we're going to stick to. I've got a list of 20 questions that are very random in, in many respects, the things that come to my mind. A few of these have come in from listeners, so look out for yours. If you've uh, sent a question in, you should hear it, and you should hear the answer from Maxine. Now, some of these, as uh, Max said to me yesterday during rehearsals, she said, well, they're slightly outside of my field of knowledge. And I said, well, you know, just answer them as you would to one of your students. So with that said, it's like a quiz for our Maxine. She's going to be tested to the limits today. Are you ready, Max? I'm ready. Oh, this is actually my question to you, and it is regarding the education. What made you want to do intensive study of this subject at Harvard? Now, I think you answered that in your story. In fact, I know you did. But could you just pop an answer on this particular episode? I'd study anything at Harvard. I went over to the business school and took a business class there. I went over to the government Kennedy School. I took a class there. So everything fascinates me. If I could find a teacher that would teach me geology, I'd lap that up. So I'm a lifelong learner and I, everything fascinates me. However, these are the fundamental truths of our existence, consciousness. And here we are, these blobs of energy that have a body. And we're in this existence right now. And we're interfacing with a lot of other blobs of energy who have bodies. And we might dual, we might see the world a different way. We might uh, have different types of devotions and different types of, of faith traditions. And that really fascinates me, how, how, how different people have different devotions and uh, connect with a greater spirit, a greater blob of energy, the infinite blob of energy. So I'm just fascinated in, in religion and in devotion and one of my many interests. So I wanted to study it. That makes entire sense. I'm exactly the same as you. And I think a lot of people are. They start getting an interest. And if you really like something, the study is brilliant. I remember once reading a quote that if you study a subject for five years, in five years, you will be something of an expert. Now, I must say in spiritualism, I don't agree with that. But generally, I would agree with that statement. In your book, What is Spiritualism? You state spiritualism teaches that everything from God is good. Now, can I recall a quote? And this is straight from your book, Max. Spiritualism teaches that everything from God is good. Red Cloud, as quoted by Estelle Roberts, 50 years a medium, she stated that God is not a being, but a force of good that permeates and is infinite. Red Cloud also said that evil is not a force, but an error in thought which has arisen in this world because of the misuse of free will. Well, my 
question. To define good surely must take some kind of an intelligent force. After all, that's a judgment in itself. So why does it have to be good? Why is the divine forces of the universe apparently good? After all, when we look at nature itself, is it good or is it bad? It's neither. It's neutral. Animals are not really good. They're not really bad. The earth is neither good nor bad, is it? So is it just a simple thing that the that the, us humans have said to define good because it's a better way of living? I'd love to know your opinions of this. Yes. Well, I said everything from God is good. Uh, there's a well-known axiom people might say, it's all good. You know, God is good. So that phrase kind of grew out of, of those other phrases. In the uh, epistles of Paul, uh, Paul writes, God is love. Okay. And what is love, but goodness, you know, goodness on steroids, you know, another name of another name for good is love. Okay. Stretching it out. So I, I wrote that and I believe that the God is, uh, it's an error to think that God is bad, or God is judgmental, or God brings bad. So you might say, oh, well, my life may stink right now. I may be in the sewers, and it's just all sorts of problems. How can God be good? You're telling me God is good, and my life is, is a sewer? And you're just going to have to bear with that for maybe a year, maybe six months or so, and realize that looking back through the hardships of our life, you know, I'm not going to get on a high horse and say, oh, there was a lesson to that. But it, the all of those experiences blend into our being and make us who we are. All of those experiences I mentioned uh, when I read for someone or when I look at someone's energy, I, I use the phrase, the arc of their life. You know, no one's had a perfect life. No one's had a, a really easy life. Very, very few people. I haven't yet to met, meet people who have had really easy lives. So it's to steer your mind away from bad and suffering and the divine being being those qualities and to rather steer your mind to say, look, God is love. God is good. The existence, the, the pathway of your life and this life, because we are all eternal beings, is just a small snippet in the infinite arc of your overall life. Wayne Dyer famous, he said, I don't know enough to be a pessimist. Okay, so I don't know enough about your life to say it really stinks. And I know that everybody's life arcs, consciousness arcs in their eternal being. Yes, we have setbacks, but the good outweighs the bad. And what is what we call bad is not really bad when you look at it from the big picture. Well, okay. I've heard what you've said there, Maxine. I'm not entirely convinced that um, I've had that question answered. And I've had that question most of the way through my own personal path. 
The reason I say that is because you've given me definitions of what humans should do, that we should live a better life, that we should be doing everything for the greater good, for the love. But there's no real evidence to say that the universal force, that the divine, is thriving for good only, is there? And that's that's a, the point that I, I find very difficult to comprehend, that why should we live a entirely good life? Who's suggesting that that's what we do, but humans themselves? Well, there's no evidence right now, okay? There's no evidence right now. As we grow, at, or as we evolve, as we unfold, we see things from new perspectives. We gain new knowledge. So nothing static. And to say there's no evidence right now, well, look back in the history. You know, I mean, 200 years ago, they said, oh, well, there's no evidence of germs. It doesn't mean that germs aren't there. It just means that the, the evidence back then wasn't there to show it. So be patient as an eternal being let that eternity live within you. And nobody likes this word, including me, but have patience. No, I understand. And, and that's um, that's fine. Moving on to the next question. I need to start with a quote from one of your books. It's from What is Spiritualism? Cecil Cook, a great American spiritualist and medium who lectured on spiritualism and demonstrated mediumship before packed crowds at Carnegie Hall, said in his 1931 autobiography that the greatest force spiritualism had to combat comes not from the critics or the folk who fear its liberating knowledge, but from those who, professing a belief in it, do not really understand and believe in its phenomena, but refuse to learn anything about it. And you say, so true. Spiritualism needs to be clearly defined and wrestled back to those who have hijacked the sacred meaning. Um, uh, basically, I'm saying, Maxine, it, it, it would appear that mediumship has dominated the spiritual movement. And nowadays, it's the theatre-filling part of it. It's the money-generating part of spiritualism, where the real message of spiritualism has been somewhat lost. Would you agree with that? And what can we do as spiritualists to change that situ situation? How should we change our focus or our priorities? I mentioned Estelle Roberts and her 27 sold out appearances at Royal Albert Hall. She wouldn't just go up there and you said perform. There would be, if I'm not mistaken, as much time devoted to philosophy as devoted to her messages. Hanan Schwaffer or another leading figure in spiritualism would precede Estelle Roberts on the stage. Uh, maybe they weren't mentioned on the marquee, but the audience got the same amount of time in a philosophical address or a, a history of the movement or background knowledge. And then Hanan Schwaffer would turn the platform over to Estelle Roberts or Helen Hughes or the other mediums of the day. So that should be a model. Now, I think that there are 
there is at least one very grounded, very good, spiritually grounded, philosophically grounded medium doing large hall appearances in the UK. But I'm not sure if this person really devotes the time to say, and this person is a member of the SNU, and say, let me tell you about the movement. Let me tell you about the people who have come before me. And let me tell you about their messages and the philosophy of the movement. And yes, we're going to have a fun time tonight, maybe have a few laughs or tears. But this movement of which I'm a part of is so much bigger than me and precedes me from at least 100 years. Uh, I would I would be very warm hearted to know that a message like this, it doesn't have to be equal time, but at least a half an hour of explaining spiritualism before the messages come and the laughter and the tears and the blah, blah, blah. So I, I want to see equal time or almost equal time given to background and philosophy uh, in large appearances. And number two, I'd like people to push back. I'd like the mediums to, to kind of push back against the media when they interview them and say, you know, I'm not going to appear on your morning news talk show unless I explain a little bit about what this is. So I'm going to demand a little time for philosophy or the background or the history. I'd like to see mediums with a little bit of chutzpah in this way or cojones to say, I'm standing up for this philosophy. And you want me on your morning talk show? Well, I want a few minutes to talk about hey, it began in 1848 with the Fox sisters and blah, 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 and have a little blurb, you know, for the general audience to, to, to say before you go into medium mode. I hear major American mediums used to go on Larry King show. I'm not going to name who they are, but you could, you could guess. I never heard them talk about the movement. Never heard them talk about their books, what's in the books. You know, maybe give a few readings, but you you didn't learn anything. You'd think it, that you're not doing the general audience any favors by being a great medium and not talking about the movement. Years ago, I used to go to a church called Bournemouth Spiritualist Church down in Dorset on the south coast in the UK. And I used to go with a notebook and pen. In fact, I did it in my own church in Christchurch. And I used to write notes during the philosophy because to me, I got more from that philosophy than I did when a medium come and apparently brought somebody through that I really wasn't convinced it was right anyway. But the philosophy meant far more to me. I, I should just balance it back, though. Not all mediums are just out there for effectively the money. I do know some very, very good mediums that equally are very spiritual. In fact, our own president, David Bruton, came on um, Spirited Talk in our Christmas address and talked very beautifully, um, without script, without notes about the importance of philosophy, etc. So I know there is a movement to address this 
But I also know that there is an audience that will say, but it doesn't sell tickets. And just one other thing on that. I remember when I first moved to the north and I went off to the church that was near my area. And it was a Wednesday night. I'll give you that. It was a Wednesday night. And the visiting medium stepped onto the stage and started a philosophical address to which the chairman on the front row shouted up, "Uh, we don't do philosophy. We just want messages. Thank you. And that was my first time in that church. What a shocker. When you give an address, you're giving everybody a message. You can give a platform contact and touch one person. And the other people might be impressed, blah, blah, blah. But if you give a philosophical address, even a short one, even if you give a prayer, you're giving a message to everybody. I'd like to see also the SNU and the governing bodies of spiritualism say for addresses and prayers is as faint as evidential mediumship. I think that is a general consensus. Philosophy is not something that's dead and buried, and most of them believe in it, and a lot do practice it. The philosophy side of spiritualism is being worked on, and there are some very, very good people on it. Thank you very much for your answers on that one, uh, Max. Really appreciate it. I'm just going to lighten it up a little bit now, because I've now got a listener's question. Now, this question comes from Sandra, who's in Germany. And Sandra asks... How can I raise up my awareness to get more information from the spirit world, like names, for example, getting more information in a reading? As a medium in training, I would love to unfold my awareness more. How can I do that on my own? Love, Sandra. Well, what's coming to mind, Sandra, is if you want the fruit on the furthest part of the branch, you've got to get out there on the furthest part of the branch. You, you've got to let go of the trunk and be comfortable getting out there on the, on the branch and, and, and getting that. You can't stay in the harbor and sail your sailboat. You've got to move beyond your comfort. And, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word reach, but you've got to go out on the branch, okay? Uh, figuratively, maybe literally. You've got to let go of inhibitions, uh, ideas of safety, and expand your comfort zone, okay? You may have heard that, that phrase, get out of your comfort zone. Now, as you're doing this, I sometimes have a good uh, way with names, but when I work with the spirit world, I also, you know, here I am saying, get away from the trunk of the tree, get out on the branch, I tell the spirit world, give me three names, okay? And these are not Tom, Dick, and Harry, or James, and uh, John, and whatnot. But, you know, I don't work in common names. Uh, I've seen that just overused. But if it's a name that I have to get out on the branch with, you know, I might say, oh, oh, well, Trevor, or Xavier, or... Um, Vivian, work with three common names. If you're on the if you're on the spot, and if you want to work with names, it might crush your feelings to give one. And oh no, that that would be a no. Ask the spirit world, give me three, because my mental mind might be the source of one of them, and then we we might be working with the other two. So that's how I started to work with names. I'd rattle off three not-so-common names. 
And yep, yep, pretty soon one of them would be a hit. And then when I was feeling comfortable, tell the spirit world, okay, drop that down to two names. Here I am in the flow, uh, not just one name, but, you know, and it might be the, if I was really in the groove, it might be the first name and the middle name. Use that type of approach first and do stay away from the common names and tell the spirit uh, world, you know, no John and no Johns and Jims and or whatever is the most common in Germany. I think one of the problems that we've got, Max, and I think we all know it, is the ego gets involved and nobody likes to be wrong. And that's a shame. Another thing that we have to combat is ourselves telling ourselves, I don't do names, because that is a command that we're taking on board, that we don't do names where we actually should. Whatever you say is what you will get. So if you say, I don't do names, you'll never do names. And then another great uh, medium we were talking about yesterday, Paul Jacobs. He said, if you're scared of saying the name, then leave it to the end of the reading before you say it. We've got to be prepared to get it wrong a thousand times. Last night, Max, I was laying in bed thinking about today's interview and uh, the things that we'd done through. And a gentleman come into my mind. It actually, I actually seen him, his face come right close to my mind. I believed it to be your father that was coming through in the spirit world. Now, before you say anything, uh, Max, the gentleman gave me the name George around him. I would like to think that that was his name. To describe him, he had a kind of a square head. I mean, kind of square across the top uh, haircut. He was grey-haired. And the nearest I can describe his features, he was kind of Walter Matto. You would put him in the Walter Matto-looking type of character. But he came through. He wasn't smiling tremendously, but of course there was a warmth. And as I said, I thought that was your dad. Would that make sense? My dad's middle name is George. And uh, he had a a bony, masculine uh, appearance to his uh, head and face. So I can understand the Walter Matho kind of look. Very, very good. Yes, I mean, he wasn't chatting away to me last night. He would just came, he made an appearance. He was quite, I would say stern, but friendly with the sternness. But it was just an awareness. It was almost like he said, I know that you're, you know, dealing with my daughter at the moment, that kind of effect. Now, the reason I've just said that on here, Sandra, we got to not be scared to try these things. I tried there, I might have failed. I don't know. It might still not be enough evidence to prove a link or a connection, but you have to have a bit of guts and a bit of bottle and, and go ahead. Does that make sense, Max? It does. It does. And in our development, we can't refrain from taking risks. You took a risk to give that information to me, and it might have been solely for your benefit, that more so than mine, because your relationship with the spirit world is hey, I can take a risk. Now, that's a very good point. I never really thought about that. That's a very good point. Moving on, you quoted in a book, I think it was the same book that um, we've been taking the quotes from at the moment. Carl Jung was asked, does he believe in spirituality or uh, God, whatever? He was asked, does he believe? And he answered, no, I don't believe, I know. Now, that's an interesting quote, and I've known that quote for years, and you talk about it in there. But I've got a question, Max, and this is very difficult. Not everybody has been able to sit in a physical um, seance. I have. 
And I've witnessed things that changed me from being a believer to a knower. I've seen things that are, well, they defy science as we understand it. So it was easy for me to jump from being a a believer to a knower. But that's not so easy for the average person, or is it? Again, you have to look at the arc of their life and the eternity of their their soul. And they're going to know. Uh, if not now, down the road of their eternal existence. We're lucky to know now. There was a time in our existence when we didn't know. And when we encounter someone who doesn't know, hey, that was us how many years ago? So we're all on this eternal path. And we're all going to get, you know, we're all going to come to understandings. So... You have to have also some empathy. They're on their journey. They're going to get it. If not now, later. That's how I deal with it. Okay. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. But I I still find it slightly difficult to understand how, let's take Sandra, for example. At the moment, she's probably a believer. And even after 10 or 15 years, if she hasn't gone to physical sciences, physically seen or experienced the the spirit world, it's still rather difficult for her to say, and on heart, I know that there's life after death. It's always going to be a belief at that point, even though she may have years of knowledge to back it. Does that make sense? It does, but I I do believe in uh, reincarnation, or I believe in our eternity, not only tomorrow, but yesterday. We were in situations uh, before I say again, where, where we didn't know, or we didn't have a firm understanding, or we were in an environment that, that is different. Everyone will get there. And so many people uh, consider a spiritual development to be a sprint. You know, it's good to sprint once in a while, but you can't sprint forever. And it's a forever kind of development. There's a lot that we don't know. And the worst part about it is we don't know what we don't know. It's infinite down the road. And uh, we, we just have to be present, uh, present like the, like the Buddhists are uh, and uh, a lot of secular people are in the moment, you know, in the moment. And let go of anything that you think should be occurring. Oh, I should know this. Oh, they should know this. If you're in the now, if you're in the present, there is no should. I hope that answers your question. Max, the next question I have on my list is, it's about the Akashic records that everybody goes on about. The complete recording of a life or everything that's ever happened on Earth that is apparently reviewed when we go to the other side. Now, I find this somewhat amusing. Is there any real evidence of this being true or is this just a man-made notion in some way to make us feel guilty while we try to live a good life on Earth? What's your views on the Akashic Records? Oh, that gets back to what we were talking about and I would be questioning people and I said, what a, would question them. Why do they call it the Akashic Records? Who's, who said that? Who said that first? And sure enough, in my exploration... The Akashic Records were first mentioned uh, relatively recently 
in the last 60 years by uh, an American psychic and medical intuitive called Edgar Casey. Everyone else has latched onto this term and given it their own meaning. And if you look back in the Edgar Casey material, he might have had a totally different meaning uh, when he was in trance and talking about the Akashic Records. And it goes back to also words and labels and whatnot. But there's two ways I could answer this. One way is that everything is energy. Okay, I said that before. Everything you've ever done in your eternal existence, and I mean eternal, eternal way in the past existence, and everything that is happening in the world today and all those possible futures uh, we talked about briefly, all of that body of, of knowledge, okay, all of the bits of, of data can be called the Akashic Records. The data of everything that's ever, 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 ever happened, the sound of the bird chirping on a certain branch, in a certain tree, at a certain moment, at a certain place, all of that's recorded or all of that's in the energy that we could call the, the Akashic records. So everything is energy. Energy can't be destroyed. Something happens and it remains. The energy of that remains. Don't ask me to do a deep dive on that. It, that's about as deep as I want to go right now. The Akashic Records is just an eternal energy field, if you will, if you will. So definitely. And another way of verifying this, another way of looking at this, okay, because people might not be able to grasp an energy field, you know, like a cloud of energy, you know, or uh, whatnot, but that's infinite in size. Edgar Casey and a lot of other people who work through hypnosis, and I'm talking about the really pioneers of hypnosis, the Michael Newtons, the Brian Weiss, the people who have done uh, past life uh, therapy uh, and life between lives material, all hypnosis-based. They take their clients back, and there are many, many, many a common... Many, many clients talk about going into a, a library where there are just ground to ceiling scrolls, rolled up pieces of paper, and they go in there for a certain purpose, maybe as part of their life review or to look at some bit of knowledge in the past, you know, in, in this hypnosis, um, uh, someone will take a scroll off of the off of the wall and unroll it. And then it might become three-dimensional. It might become multi-sensory, sensory, and they could see, feel, touch, smell, you know, that chirp of that bird on that branch, on that tree, in that place in time. Uh, so whether you call the Akashic Records a formless energy field or whether you picture it, it's easier to picture it as a, as a great library of, uh, of knowledge. I'm a believer in, in the Akashic Records, and uh, I always like to hear what 
Edgar Casey is is talking about because he was he was the first to use that particular term. So does that help? Well, it's a very intelligent answer. Something I read in your book, which is called What the Great Mediums Have Taught Us About Spirit Guides. Now, you offer a very balanced view in this book, and it's one of my favourite books that I've read of yours so far. One repeated suggestion as to why guides appear to be coy with giving details of themselves in the belief that their words of teaching are far more important. Now, that's one point of view. I I actually read that really badly. Uh, But basically, you're saying in the book that when we ask our guide, tell me your name, tell us a little bit about you. They're very coy at doing that. They say they don't want to waste their time or their energy giving us trivia like that. They'd rather give us something that's greater knowledge, greater depth, I suppose you'd say. If the guide is unprovable, many logical and sensible people, which I think I might well be, will just suggest that that information is being voiced by the medium from somewhere in their deep subconscious rather than from an intelligent uh, source in another world. Again, just explain to us what are your views? Why do guides be coy? Anytime you become more attached to the guide than their message, I feel they'll back off and say, sorry, this relationship isn't working anymore. I've had that. A good friend and a, and a tutor have, has told me that that is what kind of happened to them. And sure enough, I'll share a story. About five years ago, I, I got very, very comfortable with Uh, the energy from the other side. And I was working with this energy and we had a very good relationship and it resulted in in, um, me developing in many ways. And in my meditation, in a meditation that I would um, perhaps overuse to attune and blend with their energy, I always started out this meditation the same way and you could say oh I overused the calling card or whatever but in my mind I would go to a very beautiful place a very special place for me the the Taj Mahal and in my mind I would go to this building and I I know exactly the bench that I would sit on and uh, continue my meditation with this visualization and the, this this person would appear before appear next to me, and I got I got very detailed on how they were attired and and what their appearance looked like. And then in my meditation, we together would go leave those grounds and walk into a mustard field, and the particular image of that location the particular images of what I attached to this energy, I got comfortable with because I would use that meditation constantly to attune to the, to their energy. And perhaps I got too attuned to that energy. Perhaps I relied on that energy. Perhaps I got into the storyline too deep. And perhaps I just was done with them as far as we both could go together, but they, they've no longer appeared. And I kind of missed, I kind of missed that. So 
I caution people because that that is exactly how I stated it. If you get attached to an image, uh, a location, a sequence, a appearance, a storyline, it's not about them. It is not about them. They've had their own spiritual uh, pathway. They've had their own soul growth, but it's not about them. You know, they may reveal something that's relevant to, to you to, to make a point. But if you dive in deep into their life, you just lost it. You just lost your, you took your eye off the ball. You took your eye off the reason you are with them. So I didn't, I didn't know I'd share that kind of story. Spirit guides change uh, throughout our life. I, I do believe that we, we, we come in with one that is kind of overseeing our life plan, but people will also come and go. Spirit guides will also come and go depending on where we are in our uh, development and where we're going. I, I believe that there's one permanent one that kind of stands back and overlooks how you are getting on in relation to how you thought you would be doing in this life. But then there might be experts or certain guides coming in for certain things or certain times of your life. The way we are progressing means that our language and our terminology changes somewhat as well. I mean, years ago, you might have just mentioned occasionally a guide in the spirit world or a connect or whatever, a gatekeeper or whatever. Nowadays, it's become very trendy to say spirit team. I use that wording as well, my spirit team working with me. So that in itself builds a picture that may not necessarily be accurate. Right. And we don't know what we don't know. There could be many people in the background that we're just too stupid to notice and might be playing a big, uh, big role. So we're very naive just to think, oh, this is the way I've only got one. She, he's been with me for the whole of this life of an, and I'm not going to get another. Well, how ignorant bullheaded is that? Okay. Next question is from a very good friend of mine and a member of the Friends of Spirited Talk on Facebook. It's Mr. Paul Hennings. And his question to you, Max, is do you believe God is an omnipotent being or an intelligent energy force? Oh, I remember uh, looking at this question and realizing what a can of worms is this? Um, there have been family squabbles, generational squabbles, uh, skirmishes and wars, you know, over what God is. And um, there have been a few good books um, written about the concept of God, okay, in a very inter interfaith way. You know, how all these devotional people consider the divine essence and what can we distill down as commonalities and similarities and the greater characteristics of, of God based on how everybody in the world has ever viewed them. And um, two points of divergence that I'm very passionate about and that jump up through the books and through the, through the religions is form or formless, okay? The American spiritualists will say infinite intelligence. Now, that's about as formless as you can get, like a blob of energy, you know? And 
at the same token, Christians believe Jesus is a part of the Trinity. They believe Jesus is God incarnate. It definitely taking a form. Um, Hindus have a whole litany of manifestations of God, male and female, uh, just rattle them off. Different types of personalities, Hanuman, Shiva, Kali, different as night and day. But in that faith tradition, they might have a statue uh, of a form and that they believe their God is formed, it takes a form. Now, how different to the American spiritualists who say infinite intelligence? You know, they don't even say the word God. So form or formless? Me, I prefer the form. It's just my personality. I like statues. But then I can't say God only takes the, the, the form of Shiva. I've got to have Hanuman there. I've got to have Ganesh. I've got to have I don't know who. And I've got to have Jesus. So God of many forms. So many forms, it is formless. I'm in the form camp. But I can't boil it down to just one statue. The other big divergence is, is God personal or is God impersonal? Again, that kind of dovetails the form and, and formless. But is God just for all humanity and God doesn't get involved in your particular life? Just uh, the rolling background of cosmic consciousness and, and you wouldn't dare say help you know, in your time of need, because God wouldn't be your personal God. God is for everybody. Where am I in that camp? Well, again, my personality, I like to think that I have a God that knows my name. Okay, I, I'm in the camp that I like to believe that God knows my name, knows my path. Uh, there's been scriptures from a variety of uh, faith traditions that say, God knows the blades of every grass. So of course God would know me and my problems. And if I have a little problem, I think that I, I should hope that the hand of God will reach down in a personal way and touch me, okay? Whereas other people would say, you know, good luck with that. God is just impersonal. Uh, what you're asking for is is not possible. So that's the great debates about God. That Those are two of the great debates about God, and that those are where I stand. And I thank Paul very much for that very intelligent question. When you were talking there, Max, it reminded me uh, of about 10 years ago, my partner's auntie, and um, she was very much a devout Christian. She served the church. She was a Samaritan. She counseled people. She was a real, you know, God's lady and um, beautiful lady too. And we had a good relationship and she knew what I did. She knew that I talked to dead people and uh, she was always very chatty and always, how are you going with yours? And I remember just towards the end of her days, I said to Auntie Kath, I said, would you, do you mind if I just ask you a question? Could you tell me what do you think God is? Do you believe God is an old man that sits in a chair looking over everybody? And she looked at me and she said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I didn't say any more. I just thought, who am I to argue? That's how she wants to see the God 
as a man sat in a chair, dominating or overlooking. That's her view. And she was one of the most religious ladies I've ever known. So there we go. Put that in the mix, Max. Isn't it wonderful that we all look at God different ways on different parts of the world? If it works for them, power to it. I don't think God cares. I think uh, at the end of the day, any recognition of no matter how you see uh, God, the divine force, or whatever you want to call it, I don't think that matters. I think it's just uh, uh, a way of accepting is uh, pretty damn good. This podcast will conclude in the next episode. This presentation was made possible, in part, thanks to our contributing partners. Thank you for your support. You've been listening to a Spirited Podcast here on Spirited Talk. If you want to find out more and how you can become one of our partners, visit us on spiritedtalkpodcast.com. And Spirited Talk Podcast is all one word. Finally, before you leave, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whatever channel you listen to it on. From the guest today and your host Trevor, thank you for listening. Goodbye.